0: Hi I'm Gordon
1: and I'm Fiona.
0: We're from Gate Church International in Dundee Scotland and would like to welcome you to this week's podcast. Our goal here is growing people to bring Christ into
1: our communities and to see you get connected with God as people and his purpose. We hope this message inspires you in your faith journey. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. So, as I said earlier, we—I—I uh, I did the formal welcome. So let's give them a round of applause. Richard Samino and John Huang, come and share, brothers. Well, good morning, everyone.
1: Yes, good morning.
0: <laughs> I'm going to let Richard do his first hellos. Well, hello.
1: <laughs> first hello. I, I can't tell you um, how blessed John and I have been, really, to, to articulate that. Our time with, with, with Gordon and his family have been amazing. Our time this week with young adults has just been above and beyond anything we could have asked or thought um, in our, on our way over. God has just been so amazing. And we've enjoyed the fellowship we've had here and the opportunity to just open the Bible together. So thank you for the privilege of allowing us to be here. And I want to say personally, thank you for how you guys have loved on J.D. Um, when, when we called, my wife and I called him one day. And um, my wife, of course, you know, she's being very mother-esque to him saying, are, are you homesick at all? And there was a little pause and he says, actually, no. He said, I have been so embraced and so loved that I feel right at home. So thank you so much for that. can as a pastor, it means the world to me. And um, I'm just so blessed that he's been blessed here and I'm blessed that you guys have been blessed by him. So uh, again, I'm Richard. I'm, I've been married for 42 years this summer to my beautiful best friend, Valerie. We have four children, amazing children. Um, a daughter who is 39. She's married and lives in Brooklyn, New York, and she has two children. Ever bless, who is five years old, and Honor, who is two years old. And sadly, they live 3,000 miles away from us because we live in California. I have a younger son whose name is Sean, and he is married and lives in downtown LA in the Arts District. There, he's a musician. Super creative guy, him and his wife, a younger daughter named Ashley. She'll be married two years this summer. Well, she just was married two years, just had her anniversary. And she lives in Southern California, 10 minutes from John. And we have a a younger son named Nathan who is 21 and not married. And he actually rents a room from his sister Ashley and her (laughs) husband. So um, I've been pastoring uh, Metro Calvary for 15 years now been so incredibly blessed um, to be a part of God's work there, and so glad to have been introduced to Dundee last year in Creation Fest, and introduced to Gordon, and now introduced to you. So, John.
0: And good morning to you. Yeah. Um, My name is John, as Gordon mentioned, and I, I echo everything that Pastor Richard shared in terms of how welcome and how blessed... Um, we have not only felt but been during our time here in Scotland and as short as our time here has been you know deep down in our hearts we know that this isn't the only time that Scotland is going to be a part of our story and and you you all are such an amazing group of people and I'm just so excited to see what the Lord is doing here you know when you think about how the Bible says that God is enthroned in the praises of his people You know, when you think about planet Earth and the 7 billion people that are gathered um, all over the face of this world right now, in how many geographical locations is King Jesus being enthroned in the praises of God's people, right? But there's one thing that we can say for sure, he's being enthroned here in Dundee. And this morning, as you were singing and and as you were declaring the praises of King Jesus, God was being magnified, he's being exalted, and I'm just so thankful to be a part of that. And so, as Pastor Richard shared, um, we're from California, he's up in Northern California, I'm down in Southern California, Um, and um, prior to being where I am now, um, I'm one of the teaching pastors at a church called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, um, but before that, in, from 2002 to 2012 for 10 years, I was church planting and pastoring in Brazil. And um, so not only did the Lord um, allow me to just see just a, a really great work of His Spirit in just the way that He was transforming lives, but it was there in Brazil that I met my wife and we got married and our two kids were born there. And so um, my oldest boy, he's 11 years old. His name is Daniel, and my youngest um, is Anna. And, uh, and it's just been an amazing, amazing journey to just see the Lord shaping and directing um, our lives. And, and we shared this with the young adults when we started our time together, but um, I just have to reiterate what a, what a special privilege this is for me to be able to sit up here with Pastor Richard you see, when I was 13 years old, that's when I met Richard Semino, and he, uh, he became my high school pastor. And so from the ages of 13 on through 18, Richard poured into me the Scriptures, the Word of God. And I, at that time, never imagined that, that not only would our friendship um, would go as deep as, as it has, but to think that God's allowed us to travel all over the world yeah. to do ministry together, to together to talk about King Jesus together, and and this is a relationship that has been, um, it's been um, founded and rooted and launched in the Word of God, yeah. in the person of Je- in the person of Jesus and the Scriptures, and and I'll tell you the thing that I so appreciate about my friendship with Pastor Richard is is that uh, not only can we talk about all sorts of stuff, mainly about food, um, but it always comes back to Jesus, and it comes back to the Word of God. And I'll tell you, that's what's been so sweet about spending time with your pastor, Gordon. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, your pastor is a hoot. Your pastor's a riot, and he's had us laughing, but I'll tell you what, as, as much fun as it is to be with Gordon and, and Fiona, at the end of the day, it comes back to Jesus. Yesterday, we had dinner at their house, and and we were talking about food. We were talking about pizzas and all sorts of different things, but by the time the conversation was coming to a close, we had just been sitting around the fire and their daughters, and we were just talking about the Lord. So, I just want to say how blessed we are and thankful we are for that. Amen. Well, this morning, um, we're really excited about doing something that Richard and I have never done before, and that is to, to share the pulpit, metaphorically, and to be able to, um, to minister the word, to serve the word to you to um, to you um, this morning together. And so, this morning, I w- I'd like to start by um, reading a scripture, and I, I would love, I would love it if if uh, you could turn your Bibles with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter fifteen. Jeremiah chapter 15, and there's one verse in the book of Jeremiah that I'd like to begin with. It's Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Jeremiah 15, 16. And I'm going to be reading from the New King James translation. The prophet declares, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Wow. Listen to that again. Your words were found, and I ate them. I devoured them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you again for the word of God and for the gospel of God. We thank you, Lord, that this gospel has, has been, the, been your means of bringing um, not only the truth of who you are to us, but Lord, the living life of our Lord Jesus Christ to us. And I pray that all of us, as we hear the word, that not only would be, we be encouraged and refreshed and nourished, but, Lord, I pray that you'll just take us deeper so that our relationship with you will go further. We want to honor you. We want to love you. We want to glorify you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. What we'd like to do is talk about the Bible Because there is nothing more precious and nothing more wonderful in the world in regards to gifts that the Lord has given to the church than a written, um, his written word that comes to us in the form of this book. In fact, David in Psalm 19 said that he desired the Word of God more than silver and gold. In fact, he pursued the Word of God like a man who was searching out treasure. The man Job said that he desired the Word of God more than his necessary food. Listen, we are so blessed and we are so privileged to have the written Word of God in our possession. This book called the Bible. Now, when we talk about the Bible, the word Bible it comes from the Greek word "biblios," and the word "biblios" simply means book. And the Bible is also called the Scriptures, and the word Scripture it simply means the writings. It's also referred to in Romans one two as the Holy Scriptures. That that word holy means that the, the writings that we have here, it's unlike any other writing in the world. It's set apart. It's unique. It's different. Um, 2 Timothy 3.15, it's referred to as the sacred writings. In Acts 13, verse 15, the Bible is referred to as the law and the prophets, and I like this one. In Romans chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible is referred to as the oracles of God. This is the book that we have on our laps, in our hands this morning. And there's a couple of things we need to understand about the Bible. And the first thing is that the Bible, this book, it's a unique book, right? There's no other book in the world that is like the Bible. It was written over a 1,500 year time span, over 40 generations. It was written by over 40 different authors from different walks of life, such as dignitaries and diplomats and priests and prophets and servants and scholars. It was written on three different continents. It was written in Asia and Africa and Europe. And the Bible was also written in three different, uh, it was also written in different places, such as prisons and palaces, and written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Listen, the Bible is a unique book. What we have here on our laps, in our hands, it's a unique book. But more than being a unique book, listen, we need to know and understand that the Bible is God's book. Right. The Bible is God's book. When we talk about the Bible, we need to understand and we confess that every word, every word in the Bible is the breathed out word of God. Listen, it is the inspired, it's the infallible, that means without mistake. It is the inerrant, that means without error. It is the inspired, infallible word of God. And you remember 2 Timothy 3.16, it declares that all Scripture is God-breathed. That is the book that we have on our laps. This is the book that we have in our hands. And when you open up the book, this is where we discover the, the truth about God. This is where we experience the power of God. And yet, this is where so many people are ignorant about the Bible. Right. I, I remember hearing about a man that said, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I just don't know what's in between. And sadly, that describes so many people. There are people that if you ask them about the Bible, they will say, I believe the Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover. I just don't know what's in between those covers. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about what's in between those covers, and so, if you were to open up your Bible, and before you even get to Genesis, and most of our Bibles, we will land in the table of contents, right? And when you look at the table of contents, you discover that the Bible is a collection of 66 books, and they are set in two main sections. And the first section is called the Old Testament. How many of you are familiar with the term Old Testament, right? We all hear that, the Old Testament. Now, there are 39 books in the Old Testament, starting with Genesis and going all the way on through to the book of Malachi. Now, when we use the word testament, the word testament simply means covenant or agreement. And you have two testaments in the Bible. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. The Old Testament is God's covenant with His people before Jesus the Messiah came, and it gathers around Mount Sinai. The New Testament is God's covenant with His people after Jesus the Messiah came, and it gathers around not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary. And so, as you look at the table of contents and you see the 39 books from Genesis on through Malachi in this category called the Old Testament, we see that in the Old Testament, God related to his people on the basis of his law. It was legal, rules, regulations, and this includes God's moral laws, his ceremonial laws, his dietary laws. And so the list of the 39 Old Testament books, it can be cataloged, in four categories. And so when you open up and you look at the list of those Old Testament books, the first five books of the Old Testament, they come under the category of the law. Um, It's also referred to as the law of Moses, or it's referred to as the five scrolls. Maybe you heard the word Pentateuch. Pentateuch simply means the five scrolls. And starting in Genesis and going on through Deuteronomy, there is a time span from creation to 1406 B.C., and so you open up to the book of Genesis, and there we read about the beginning of the world and the, human re- or the Hebrew race. We open up to Exodus, and we read about the salvation and the birth of the nation of Israel. You open up to Leviticus, and there that title, Leviticus, it means pertaining to the Levites, and it's the worship manual for Israel's Levites and priests. And then you open up to the book of Numbers, and there we have a record of Israel's 40 years of desert wandering. And then you have the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means the second law, and this is God's law restated for a new generation that will enter Canaan, the promised land. So those first five books, the law, the law of Moses, the five scrolls. But then you come to the next set of books, the next 12 Old Testament books, they come under the category called history. Starting with Judges, going all the way to Esther, these are the books of history. And in Joshua, all the way to Esther, they cover a time span in Israel's history from 1406 B.C. to 430 B.C., so a long period of time. And so you open up to the book of Joshua, and we read about the conquest of Canaan and judges. It tells us about the era. It's like the dark ages, the era of the judges of Israel. And Ruth is this great little story of four chapters that happens during the time of the judges. And you have first and second Samuel. These books, they're biographical. They tell us about the prophet Samuel and the first king of Israel, King Saul, and the great King David. And then we have First and Second Kings, which tells us about the era of the kings of Israel and Judah, because after the death of Solomon, there was a civil war, and you remember that Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The 10 northern tribes became what was known as the kingdom of Israel in the north, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they made up the kingdom in the south and so the books of first and second kings as well as first and second chronicles they tell us the history of the kings of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah but at the end of the kings at the end of the chronicles we read about because of Israel's rebellion against God and their unwillingness to repent that God sent the empire of the Assyrians to come and to overthrow the northern kingdom called Israel. And that generation of people, that group of people, they were dispersed throughout the world. But then later, because Judah was unwilling to learn from the mistakes of Israel, they continued to live in rebellion against God. So God sent the Babylonians under the rulership of a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar to come and overthrow the kingdom of Judah. And the people of Judah, they were taken away into captivity for 70 years to Babylon. That's the area of modern-day Iraq today. And for 70 years, they lived as exiles. But after those 70 years, as Jeremiah the prophet declared, that after those 70 years, God would raise up a new king, and the king that we know from history as Cyrus the Great, he would then allow the Jews to return back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. And so in doing that, with the command, he, he told them, I want you to go and rebuild the temple. And so 50,000 Jews, they leave um, the exile, they go to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple, and that's what the book of Ezra tells us about but once the temple was rebuilt, the temple needed to be protected, and so the walls were broken down. So Nehemiah tells us a story of the rebuilding of the walls. And then Esther, the last book of history, this book tells us about how God saved the Jewish race in Persia. So, for the Jews that didn't go back to Israel, there was a plot against them by a villain, because every good story needs a villain, right? And in Esther, there's a villain by the name of Haman, and he had a plot of genocide, wanting to destroy the Jewish population there. And God raised up a young woman by the name of Esther. And we have this phenomenal, amazing story about how God saved and delivered. He rescued his people. But those are the books of history. And then After the books of law, five books there. After the books of history, 12 books there. Then you have the books of poetry, five books there. And they're also referred to as the wisdom literature. So you have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And what I love about the books of poetry is that they remind us that even though what we have in our Bible is the Word of God, it is not detached and disconnected from real human experience. And that's why we love the Psalms, right? Because when we're going through the highs and lows, the dark seasons and the good seasons of life, and we're trying to know how to articulate what we're feeling at that moment, and we feel like we're at a loss for words, don't we find such comfort in the Psalms? Because David and the other psalmists were able to articulate what you're feeling at that moment. And so we have these poetic books. But then after the books of poetry, you have the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, history, Joshua through Esther, poetry, Job through the Song of Solomon. Then you have 17 books of the prophets. And the 17 books of the prophets are categorized in two main sections. You have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, they're called the major prophets not because they're better or more important than the other prophets, the minor prophets. It's simply because their books are bigger. So the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel... So Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were prophets of Judah. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, and he's lamenting, he's mourning as he watches the city of Jerusalem burning to the ground as the Babylonians had come in and they began to destroy the city. And Ezekiel and Daniel, these are two of the Hebrew prophets who spoke God's message to God's people during the Babylonian captivity. But then following the major prophets, we have the minor prophets, and you have 12 books there, starting with Hosea and going on to the book of Malachi. So you have Hosea, who was a prophet of Israel, who prophesied before the exile. Joel was a prophet of Judah before the exile. Amos was a prophet of Israel before the exile. Obadiah was the prophet of Of Judah before the exile. Jonah was a prophet of Israel before the exile. Micah was a prophet of Judah before the exile. Nahum was a prophet of Judah before the exile. Habakkuk was a prophet of Judah before the exile. Zephaniah was a prophet of Judah before the exile. And then you got Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And these guys are three prophets after the exile. Haggai and Zechariah were the two prophets that God raised up to motivate and to help God's people in the rebuilding of the temple that we read about in the book of Ezra. And Malachi, his message was for the worshipers that um, were there in the temple to not worship God as hypocrites, but to worship God in spirit and in truth. But those are the Old Testament books And between Malachi on through Matthew, you have 400 years called the intertestamental period. And these are 400 years, the dark period in Israel's history, because there was no direct message from God that was given. There was no new message prophetic message that was delivered, but it was during this time that the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, began to um, make their appearance. It was during this time that synagogues began to be formed, but then the 400 years of silence was broken with the New Testament. The second section of the Bible, as you follow the Table of Contents, is the New Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. And in the New Testament, unlike the Old Testament where God relates to his people on the basis of the law, listen, in the New Testament, God relates to his people on the basis of grace, on the basis of grace through the completed saving work of Jesus, the Messiah. And so the list of the 27 New Testament books can be cataloged in four categories. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, the Good News, There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why four Gospels telling us the same story? Well, it's because these four Gospels, when they're read together, they give to us a full composite of who Jesus is. You see, Matthew, he was a Jew writing to Jews, so he tells us about Jesus as the king. Mark was writing to Romans, and he emphasizes that Jesus was God's servant. Luke, the physician, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the perfect man. And John, he writes to the world, and he wants the world to know that Jesus is God. And so when you read Matthew's gospel, he emphasizes the teachings of Jesus, what Jesus said. Mark emphasizes the actions of Jesus, what Jesus did. Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, what Jesus felt. John emphasizes the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. Listen, all four Gospels read together give to us a full composite of who the Lord Jesus is. And then after the Gospels, we have one book of history, the book of Acts. The book of Acts gives to us a time span from 30 AD to 62 AD. And the book of Acts is a great biography, a history narrative of how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to the rest of the world, primarily to Rome, the most powerful city in the known world at the time. And so during this time, we see how God used a man by the name of Peter, a man by the name of Paul in the church to advance his kingdom in this world by taking the gospel to a world that desperately needs to know about Jesus and then from there we move into a section of the new testament called the epistles and I mentioned this to our young adults that the epistles were not the wives of the apostles some people thought that the word epistle simply means the letters and there are 21 epistles or letters in the new testament And the first set of the letters are called the Pauline epistles or the Pauline letters. That means that these letters were written by Paul. Now, the letters that Paul wrote, we can understand them in three categories. We have the travel letters Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These were letters that Paul wrote while he was on the move, while he was doing gospel mission. During his missionary journeys, he wrote those letters. Another category of Paul's letters are called the pastoral letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. That means that these are letters that Paul wrote specifically to pastors to talk about pastoral ministry. And then there's another set of letters called the prison letters, and those are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and those are letters that Paul wrote while he was chained as a Roman prisoner. And then after the letters of Paul, you have the final set of letters Starting with Hebrews, going all the way to Jude, Hebrews, James, first and second, Peter, first, second and third, John and Jude, and these are called the general letters simply because these letters are addressed to a general audience, to the whole church of believers. And each of these letters are theological and they're practical, and what I mean by theological, it means that in the Old Testament, the, the prophets and the priests, and the kings, they were looking ahead to the coming of Christ and His finished work. In the New Testament, the apostles, the authors of these epistles, they're looking back to the coming of Christ and His finished work. In the Old Testament, the message was, hey, let's, we're anticipating the fact that the Messiah is coming. In the New Testament, we're saying, let's understand and let's, let's explain the meaning of His coming. And then finally, the last book of not only the New Testament but also of the Bible is the book of Revelation, and this is a prophetic book, and it emphasizes the return of King Jesus. But those are the books of the Bible, but what we want to talk about, and Pastor Richard is going to come and give a fuller explanation in a moment, and that is the message of the Bible. It's one thing to understand what's in the Bible. It's it's another thing to understand what the table of contents, those listing of 66 books of the Bible are all about. It's another thing to understand what God's ultimate message in giving us the Bible is. You see, the Bible unfolds the story of God's plan and act of redemption. Listen, when you think about the Bible you need to remember the word redemption. In fact, the Bible is an amazing book because when you open up the Bible to Genesis chapter one, verse one. In Genesis chapter one, we read about God creating the heavens and the earth, right? We read that God said, and it was. God said, and it was. And then you open up to Genesis chapter two, just one page over. And we focus in on God's crowning creation when He created man and woman, people created in His image. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, man disobeys God. Man, you remember, they sinned against God, and as a result, all humanity is fallen and ruined and separated from God. As a result of Genesis chapter three, everyone else that came since Genesis chapter three, we are all sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. But I want you to think about this. I'm going to try to juggle yeah, this with. Me. I'm going to try to juggle this with. One, oh, now Richard is Mike. Mike's hand. But think about this. Genesis chapter 1, creation of the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2, a focus on the creation of man. Genesis chapter 3, man's sin. This is all it took for us to ruin the story. Think about it, that's all it took to ruin the story. You know what the rest of this is? It's the message of God's loving plan to redeem and restore sinful humanity, by the perfect person and work, the sinless life and atoning death and the physical resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Rescuer. So Genesis through Malachi is looking forward, telling us Jesus the Messiah is coming. The Gospels are declaring Jesus the Messiah is here. And Acts, through Revelation, is declaring Jesus the Messiah has come and will come again. Listen, the Bible must be read, and it must be understood through the lens of God's plan and act of redemption. Since the main character of God's act of redemption is Jesus, then that means that the whole Bible is about Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus said, this is what I told you while I was still with you, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So let me just read this last quote, and then Pastor Richard's going to take over. J.C. Ryle, born in 1816, went to heaven in 1900. He wrote this quote, Let it be a settled principle in our minds. In reading the Bible, that Christ is the central son of the whole book. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. Once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ.
1: I, I'm telling you, man, when when John shared this, I believe it was on Thursday, I, I just, my jaw was just dropped because of the clarity of the, the the reality. The Bible is the story of God. So many people get lost in the details. Well, what about this thing? And how come that? And whatever. No, no, no. Just follow the story. It's real history. The, the historical nature of this record moving from Genesis 3 forward, it's saying God has actually engaged humanity in a relentless pursuit to rescue mankind. It's just mind-blowing. So when I listen to John share this, um, I, I, I find myself thinking of the Bible as this magnificent mountain range, right? It, 66 magnificent peaks there. In my humble opinion, um, I, I think that the first 18 verses of John's gospel, his prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all the way down to, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten who's in the, at the, in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him, He's brought Him. I think that's the, that's the Mount Everest, Right? If that's the Mount Everest, I think that Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians, um, I, think that's the, um, I think that's K2, if you're, if you're an alpinist, right? And here's why I say that. Within the six chapters of that letter to the Ephesians, the Holy Spirit unpacks. The Holy Spirit explains with incredible simplicity, incredible clarity, all that God has done for us in with through and by Jesus and 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 as we were talking about how do we study the bible we look for little words and prepositions are really really important words in the bible in Jesus with Jesus by Jesus through Jesus the holy spirit in that letter he unpacks for us this incredible history of our rescue right he explains how how does the virgin birth sinless life sacrificial death bodily resurrection of Jesus connect to every christian How does that impact every man and woman who's believed with their heart on the Lord Jesus? How does it connect with everyday life as the Christian lives between the already of the cross and resurrection of Jesus and the not yet of forever in the presence of the Lord? This book does that. And in the first three chapters of this letter, we're told who we are because of Jesus. We're told who we are in Jesus. We're told who we are with Jesus We're told what belongs to us because of Jesus, what belongs to us in Jesus, what belongs to us through Jesus. The Holy Spirit in those first three chapters tells us that we have been rescued to a new and a true identity. I think that's crucial. You see, our need to be rescued actually has its beginnings in the issue of an identity crisis. You might say that the fall of man began with an identity crisis. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were intended to be defined by their relationship with their creator. That was intended to define them. They were made to bear and reflect the image and the glory of God. They were made to live for the glory of God as they lived in the world that God had made and prepared for them to live in. Their identity, and by that I mean their deepest sense of meaning, their identity was wrapped up in that. Sin entered this world when man chose to believe the lie of lies. The lie of lies says that man can find meaning and identity from something other than God. The lie of lies says that man can find meaning and identity from created things rather than the creator. In Genesis 3, we have the record of how our first parents rejected their true identity. Rather than finding their true identity in bearing the image of God and reflecting the glory of God and living for the glory of God, they sought to establish an identity that was rooted in their independence from God, rooted in the pursuit of their own glory. Guys, everything that is broken in this world, everything that's broken about you and me is traced back to that crisis of identity in an an attempt to find identity apart from our Creator. Before coming to Jesus, we were always obsessed with our identity, always trying to find what one guy named Paul Tripp puts it, he calls it our replacement identities. We've been obsessed with finding a replacement identity. And this list of replacement identities, it's big. And we see them all around us, they shape lives, they shape the world we live in. People define themselves by what they do, what they have, what they know. Who they know. People define themselves by their ethnicity. They define themselves by their sexual orientation. They define themselves by their political affiliation or their hobbies. And then to protect and reinforce their false identities, they seek to be a part of a collection of other people who share that same replacement identity. And in our vernacular, we call them tribes. And then they make an idol of their tribe, and they begin to demonize other tribes. That's what man's messed up about. Think of it, labor demonizes conservatives and vice versa. Glasgow Celtic fans demonize Glasgow Ranger fans, right? It's tribes. And life without Jesus is just exhausting. Life without Jesus consists of nonstop, moment by moment concern with, how will this make me look? What will I get out of this? How will this make me feel more secure about who I am? The gospel which is the record of God at work in the history of humanity coming up to Jesus and the record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of all that Jesus did to rescue and redeem us from the consequences of trying to find life and identity apart from God. The gospel changes all of that. Here's how Peter put it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 in the New Living Translation. For you know that God paid a ransom, and I love this, to save you from the empty life you inherited. That life spent constantly looking for who I am by way of what I do, who I know, what I have. And he goes on to say, and the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The whole of the Old Testament moves towards that. He says, God chose him, Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. There's the story of the gospel that John just walked us through. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, because of all that God did to rescue you and rescue me, guys, I am so certain of God's great love for me, so secure in his great love for me. uh, I have the courage in any given moment to not be concerned about me. That's the deal. Really and finally secure because of who I am in Jesus. The question is no longer, how will this make me look? Or what will I get out of this? Or how will this make me feel more secure about who I am? The question now for my life is, how will this moment make Jesus look great? How will this success, this relationship, this treasure, this possession bring Jesus glory? How will this success, this relationship, this treasure point others to Jesus so that they might be rescued from their replacement identities and find their true and real identity in Jesus? Now, if you wonder, like, why are so many men and women who really do profess faith in Jesus um, and who believe that because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus they've been rescued and are going to heaven, but yet they struggle with anxiety, fear, and insecurities, I think the answer is, is that they really have not quite... In the pages of scripture Who they really are in Jesus Here's what a guy named Paul Tripp said He said Because we have been rescued By the death and resurrection of Jesus We not only have a new destiny Like we're not only saved from a forever in hell And we have a new destiny, heaven He says we have a new identity I'm going to spend Just a few moments with you guys Looking at just a few Highlights of that new identity uh, Time would fail us to, to to mine out all three chapters of who we are in, with, through, and by Jesus. So just a few of them. So in your Bibles, if you if you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is a radical, life-changing, identity-changing outcome of our rescue. Hey, Paul says, I'm in Christ. I am in Christ. Before coming into faith in Jesus, we were literally outside of Christ. But the moment you believe with your heart on the Lord Jesus, God places you in to Jesus. You are brought into a living, vital union with Jesus. Every Christian has two addresses. Paul was writing to Christians who had an, an, an Ephesus mailing address, if you would. Paul wanted them to know that they had a permanent spiritual residence in Christ Jesus. This is such a life-changing outcome of being rescued by Jesus. It's It's so crucial that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul stressed this reality. He literally saturates the opening section of his letter with the phrases of in Christ or in him. Christians, no matter where we might be on planet Earth, we literally live in Jesus. Would you do me a favor, if you, if you have a pen in your hand and you've got a, a Bible, a, you know, a printed version of the Bible or a notebook, would you just draw a circle? Draw a circle and label that circle Jesus. Just write Jesus and draw an arrow to that line that forms the circle. And then inside that circle, just put a dot. And then outside of the circle, write, write me, M-E, and draw it to that little dot. The circle is Jesus, the dot is you. That's where you live. That means for anything in this world to touch your life, it must pass through Jesus. That's part of your new identity. You're in Jesus. Being in Christ is the one thing that changes everything. So Christians, would you say this out loud with me? Would you say, I am in Christ? Let's say that together. I am in Christ. Let's back up a little bit in that verse. Because there's another radical life-changing identity-changing outcome um, of our rescue. To the saints who are in Ephesus. That word saint, it means somebody who's been set apart. Set apart to God and set apart for God. That is exactly the original identity of man before the fall. That's the true identity of man. Man was made by God and he was made for God's purposes and made for God's glory. But as we said earlier from Genesis 3 forward, every one of us have turned our back on that identity. Being a saint, being near to God, belonging to God as unique instruments for His glory, it's not the result of something that you and I accomplish. The identity, this being a saint, is the outcome of being rescued. The out-of-pocket cost for you and me to be saints is zero. But it costs God everything to rescue you and me from the Utterly futile and fatal efforts to find our identity apart from him. Anyone who trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save them is a saint. Nine times in this six-chapter letter, Paul addresses his readers as saints. Nine times in six chapters, he says, you need to know who you are in Jesus, You're saints. Saint is not a title, it's an identity. It's a position of nearness to God. We did nothing to earn that position. We are set apart to God and for God because we are in Jesus. So Christians, would you say this out loud with me? Would you say, I am a saint? Would you say it? I am a saint. Here's another radical life-changing, identity-changing outcome of our rescue. It's found in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, there's that little prepositional phrase again, in Jesus, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We're blessed. Blessed. And you can hear a lot of people who who don't know Jesus use that word blessed. People who use that term in relationship to certain achievements or accomplishments or gains, and they might just say, oh, I'm so blessed. But we need to understand that our investment portfolio or our bank accounts or where we live or how we look or what we've accomplished, those are not the definition of being blessed. Because that would mean that the person whose stock portfolio has evaporated or who has nothing in the bank or who lives in a ghetto or who, or who by the world standards might not be attractive or maybe has never accomplished anything of note in the estimation of man, that would be the opposite of blessed. Look at this moment shortly after God created man. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Man had done nothing to earn or deserve being blessed. God had just created them. God blessed man because it was always in his heart for man to be blessed. It was always in God's heart for man to be defined by the unmerited love of his creator. Blessed means that God actively loved man. Not just in theory, but actively loved man. That was man's identity. That was Adam's identity. If you were to ask Adam, who are you? He would say, I'm blessed. That's who I am. In Jesus, you and I now have the same identity as Adam and Eve when they were created. They were created to be the objects, the recipients of unmerited blessing. In Jesus, I am blessed. I didn't deserve to be blessed by God at all, but God actively did something to bless me. John just showed us how much of the Bible is the record of God actively, deliberately doing something in the history of man to bless us. He moved in and through human history to rescue us from every false identity. From every shallow, empty identity that could never give us life, never give us meaning. God did something. He came in human flesh to destroy sin and death so that we might be brought back to the identity that God intended for us to have in the very beginning. I am rescued. That transforms who I am on every level. Fallen culture tells me that my identity hinges on my performance. I always have to work for my identity. I always have to earn favor. But my true identity, my forever identity is this. I was created and redeemed to be the object of God's favor. And being blessed by God has nothing to do with how well I perform. The Holy Spirit goes out of his way to let us know that we're the objects of God's unmerited favor because of Jesus. And again, he mentions Jesus 14 times in the first 14 verses of this letter. It's all about Jesus. The fact that I've been rescued through the cross and resurrection of Jesus doesn't mean that I'm beyond failure or I'm impervious to harm, but it means that no circumstance, we just sung it this morning, nothing can separate me from his love. His love goes on and on and on. To be blessed doesn't mean that God's going to shield us from poverty or from pain. God is infinitely more concerned with our eternal well-being than our temporal comfort. So who I am in Jesus guarantees me that my heavenly Father will provide me with every blessing of the Holy Spirit necessary for life between the already and the not yet. So would you say this with me, Christians? Would you say, I am blessed? I am blessed. One more time with a little gusto, please. I am blessed. I'm going to close with one. Look down at verse four, the last, the last little phrase in verse four, depending on your translation. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I think everybody here has some thought or idea about what adoption is. And maybe some are here who are adopted. There may be some... Parents here who have adopted children Maybe some of you are in the process of praying about thinking about or even in the process of adopting children But the holy spirit inspired paul to explain the outcome of our rescue to explain our new identity in terms of adoption It is deep rich layered nuanced, this idea of adoption But let me tell you this it was god's plan and it was god's pleasure to adopt us the new living translation said This, adopting us, is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure to do it. I pray that we are and will continue to be utterly undone by the Father's love for us, by the fact that it was his plan and pleasure to adopt us. Guys, we were made to be the children of God, but sin has left us orphans. It's robbed us of our, our, our original identity as the children of God. The word adoption tells us that because of sin, we weren't born into this world as the children of God. To become someone's child by adoption, it's not something that happens naturally. Adoption requires more than nature. It requires more than biology. Adoption requires choice. It requires a legal action, and that's the radical claim of the gospel. God made the choice to adopt men and women who had been orphaned by sin, orphaned by their own rebellion against God. The cross of Jesus is where the legal action took place. And this is perhaps the most amazing outcome of our rescue. I want you to think about this. In the state of California, where John and I lived, um, we have capital punishment. Um, if you con- are convicted of a felony, the, the, some of those felonies they fall under the category of you can be your prosecution and your sentence can be death. So imagine for a moment a man strapped to a gurney, ready to be put to death by legal injection. And he's there because he had committed premeditated murder, murder in the first degree. But at the last minute, the governor of the state of California calls and says, I pardon you. Well, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? If you're the guy on the gurney, and you've got all those needles in you, and somebody's ready to hit that button that's going to shove all of those chemicals into your body that are going to kill you, that would be amazing. The governor calls and says, I pardon you. But what would make it even more amazing is that This man facing death by lethal injection is because he murdered the governor's son. But as amazing and incomprehensible as it might sound, it would be altogether a different thing for that governor to not just pardon the man who had murdered his son, but how about adopt that man into his family? Give that man his own name. Give him his own last name. Make that man the heir of all his wealth. Bring that man into his home, sit at table with that man just as he would have with the son, his own son that that man had murdered. That adoption would be unthinkably radical. That adoption would be a a revolutionary change of identity. This guy would go from murderer of governor's son, ready to be put to death for it, pardoned, and now bearing the last name of the governor. Living with the governor, heir to the governor's wealth, sitting at the table with the governor. That's an unthinkable change of status. Infinitely more so, unthinkably more radical, is our adoption by God. We are guilty of the murder of God's only begotten son. Isaiah 53, he's wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Yet the gospel tells us that it was God's plan and God's pleasure to adopt us. The change of identity and status is forever staggering. It's going to take eternity to drink it in. Listen to the words of Jesus the night before he died. He said this, Father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. That is how God the Father loves anyone and everyone who will believe with their heart on the Lord Jesus. Christians, would you say this after me, please? Would you say, I am adopted. I am adopted.
0: Our time together today was something more than just wanting you to come and listen to another Bible study. We want you to know the mind and the heart of God today. You know, the Bible, this amazing book that we have, um, it's something more than just a history book, even though it has history. It's something more than just a book about morality and ethics, even though there are teachings that are practical on that topic that we could learn from. But from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there is a single person who is constantly making himself known more and more and more um, throughout the Bible because he wants to save fallen humanity, as Pastor Richard reminded us from the word. This is why it's called the gospel. This is why it's called the good news. And we discover in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that this God, who has been making his presence known from Genesis on through the rest of the Bible, he has a name, and his name is Jesus. And that changes everything in understanding that this book is all pointing to him. Listen, in Genesis, Christ is the seed of the woman and the sacrificial lamb that God provided on Mount Moriah, or will provide. In Exodus, Christ is seen in the Passover lamb, the manna from heaven, and the tabernacle. In Leviticus, Christ is seen in the offering in the high priest. In Numbers, Christ is seen in the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, Christ is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, Christ is the commander of God's army. In Judges, Christ is the angel or the messenger of the Lord who appeared to Manoah and his wife. In Ruth, Christ is seen in Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Christ is the root and the offspring of David and the rightful heir of the throne of David. In First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Christ is he who is greater than Solomon in Ezra Christ is seen in Zerubbabel the builder of God's house in Nehemiah Christ is seen in Nehemiah the restorer of God's city and God's people in Esther Christ is seen in Mordecai the one who stands in the gap for God's exiled people in the world in Job Christ is our ever living redeemer in Psalms Christ is our sacrifice savior shepherd and king in Proverbs Christ is the source of God's wisdom in Ecclesiastes Christ is the true meaning of life In the Song of Solomon, Christ is our bridegroom. In Isaiah, Christ is Israel's Messiah, suffering servant, and king of kings and lord of lords. In Jeremiah, Christ is the righteous branch and the Lord our righteousness. In Lamentations, Christ is seen in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Christ is the true shepherd who will feed and deliver his flock. In Daniel, Christ is the son of man and the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, Christ is seen in Hosea, the faithful husband. In Joel, Christ is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, Christ is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, Christ is the mighty Savior. In Jonah, Christ is seen in Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. In Micah, Christ is the everlasting ruler. In Nahum, Christ is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, Christ is God's anointed one and savior. In Zephaniah, Christ is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Haggai, Christ is the greater glory who would visit the second temple. In Zechariah, Christ is Israel's Messiah who suffered at his first coming into the world, and he will rule in power and glory when he returns. In Malachi, Christ is the son of righteousness. In Matthew, Christ is Israel's Messiah. In Mark, Christ is God's servant. In Luke, Christ is the perfect man. In John, Christ is God incarnate. In Acts, Christ is the Lord of the church. In Romans, Christ is our source of justification, sanctification, and glorification. In 1 and 2 Corinthians, Christ is our sanctifier. In Galatians, Christ is our liberator. In Ephesians, Christ is our peace. In Philippians, Christ is our life. In Colossians, Christ is our sufficiency. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Christ is our returning king. In 1 and 2 Timothy, Christ is our mediator. Between God and man. In Titus, Christ is our great God and Savior. In Philemon, Christ is our master and friend. In Hebrews, Christ is the better prophet, the better high priest, and the better sacrifice. In James, Christ is our great physician. In 1st and 2nd Peter, Christ is our chief shepherd. In first and second and third, John, Christ is the righteous one. In Jude, Christ is returning with the saints. And in Revelation, Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So here's the question. Is this your Jesus? Because if this is not your Jesus, if your Jesus is a boring Jesus that can barely get you out of bed, if your Jesus is the Jesus that doesn't deserve your worship and trust and obedience, if your Jesus is a Jesus that you can just stuff in your back pocket and you pull him out only when he's convenient for you because he's not your sufficient Savior, he's your supplemental Savior. He's not the one that you fall on your knees before and you worship and you cry out like Thomas, my Lord and my God. He's the one that you only pull out of your pocket when he's convenient for you. Listen, if you are not embracing this Jesus, then you need to understand there is idolatry happening in your heart. Why do I call it idolatry? Because as John Calvin referred to the human heart as the idol-making factory, the human heart of, in the fallen ima- imaginations of humanity, listen, whenever we start creating a Jesus that doesn't exist, a boring Jesus, a supplemental Jesus, a Jesus that doesn't deserve our worship and obedience, a Jesus that we can only get around to if we have time for him. Listen, there is no such thing as a real Jesus that is that. The only way you can have that Jesus is you invented that Jesus in the imaginations of your fallen humanity. Because there is no Jesus in heaven where the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy again. man, mean, how, how, how many times do we have to say this to him? Hey, Michael, can't you come up with new lyrics? But it says that they're crying out holy, holy, holy without, uh, without ceasing night and day, you wanna know why? Because every time they declare it, it's as if they're saying it for the very first time. Because that's how big and that's how great Jesus is. So today, we don't wanna just leave you with information Listen, we want to leave you with the God of incarnation. We want to leave you with the one who loved us, that he introduced himself. He entered into time and space, starting in the book of Genesis, and he began to show up from throughout biblical history and then finally coming in visible, audible, tangible way as God was born into this world through the means of a virgin birth. He lived among us a sinless life. And listen, he died on the cross and he became your sin. He became my sin. I can't wrap my mind around that, but the Bible teaches us that, that he became our theft without becoming a thief. He became our lies without becoming a liar. He became our murder without becoming a murderer. He became our sexual immorality without becoming a pervert. He became our sin without becoming a sinner. And in Jesus God, God poured out his wrath and judgment against your sin and my sin. And Jesus was there on the cross, and he took it. He took it for you, and he took it for me. And you're asking me why I love this King Jesus? And everything that Pastor Richard shared with us from the word... The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is pointing to the fact he did that for you so that you can say like Paul the Apostle, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Is is he personal to you? And he gave himself for me. Some of you may have grown up in church It's one thing to be an active church member. It's another thing to be a child of God. It's another thing to be this person that recognizes that in Jesus they're beloved and they are adopted because all of those things that we just heard about, it only happens in the context of in Christ Jesus. And the only way that you can be in Christ Jesus is for you to say, Jesus, I am so sorry for my rebellion against you. I am so sorry for the way I've been trying to exist in life without you. So today, right now, in this place, I am going to lay aside all my religion and I am going to recognize that you want something more than my morality. You see, Christianity is not just about behavior modification. Christianity is about transformation one person said religion may inform you and reform you but only Jesus can transform you And maybe you're here because you were walking by and you've seen this building every Sunday out of curiosity You just wanted to come in or maybe you were invited by someone to be here And this is your first exposure to the good news of Jesus and it's nothing like you imagined it was So today, it would be wrong for us to finish tonight or this morning before we ask Pastor Gordon and and is the worship team gonna come up and the worship team to come up. We wanna give you an opportunity to know this Jesus that Pastor Richard and I have been sharing with you about. And so I'm gonna ask that we all pray together. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, listen, Christian, if you are a child of God, you've given your heart to Christ, then at this moment, I I don't want you to be looking around. I want you to be praying for the people sitting next to you or standing next to you that may potentially not know Jesus. Listen, eloquence is not the way people are born again. I can't, I cannot eloquently or intellectually or academically convince you to become a Christian. This miraculous new birth of becoming a child of God, it is a supernatural work of God working in your heart. And listen, the devil the devil is gonna be distracting some hearts here because the devil doesn't want you to give your heart to Jesus. And so if you're a Christian here, you be praying that God will work in the heart of the people standing or sitting next to you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, maybe you've been religious, maybe you've been coming to church for a while, or maybe you walked in and you had no idea who this Jesus was, but you're here. Praise God that you're here. Let's pray, and we want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ right now. Guys, we want you to focus here. This is, this is probably one of the most important moments right now in church, so guys, let's focus. Let's not let distraction get the better of us. Let's focus. Let's close our eyes. Let's pray, and let's just ask God to just do a work among us right now. If you are here and you've never truly entered into this living life in Jesus, I want you, meaning it with all your heart, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And there's nothing magical about the prayer I'm about to pray, but it's one way just to help people articulate their cry to God saying, Jesus, help me. You just pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe you died for my sins and rose again from the dead. I am sorry for my sins against you. And I surrender to you now. And I give up my rebellion. And I ask you to forgive me and receive me And by faith, I receive you as my Savior, as my King. And help me to live for you for the rest of my life. Father, I want to pray for everyone and anyone who prayed that prayer right now. Father, right now we pray in the name of Jesus with the assurance of your word as your spirit is now come to dwell within them that from this point on that not only will you be bringing the change, making them more like Jesus, but right now that the Holy Spirit will overflow from their life So the greatest mark that they have life in Jesus is a day-to-day-to-day-to-day consistent walk and obedience with Christ. So we commend them to you and to the word of your grace. In Jesus' name.